Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in July 2022. Today's episode is all about Aristotle and virtue ethics. So we'll be thinking about virtue ethics itself, what Aristotle says, how virtue ethics may help to guide us, and how it compares to other ethical theories. And we'll also see what else we get onto as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Michael Lacering, who's a teacher at Christ's Hospital School. Hi, Michael. Hi, Simon. Nice to be here. Uh, and we've got Dan McKee, who's a teacher at King Edwards in Aston and a writer at Philosophy Unleashed. Hi, Dan. Hi, Simon. And hi, everyone. Nice to be here. And last but by no means least, Beth McIntosh, who's a visiting research knowledge exchange fellow at the University of Winchester and head of philosophy and religious studies at Winchester College. Hi, Beth. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. Uh, great. Good to have all three of you with us today. OK, so we're going to talk about Aristotelian virtue ethics today. Um, for any students listening in, this topic appears on the AQA and IB curricula. It isn't on OCR and Edexcel um, A-level curricula or on Scottish hires, but it may be interesting uh, to you as you consider utilitarianism and deontology and how you might compare the two and along with virtue ethics. And it's also mentioned in various topics in applied ethics. I think Edexcel uh, does that. So to get us going, let's think about normative ethics in general, as virtue ethicists have interesting things to say uh, about that. Beth, do you want to say a few words about normative ethics generally here to help lead us into virtue ethics? We're happy to start. Yes, so virtue ethics is obviously one of the three predominant ethical theories or major approaches within normative ethics. And normative ethics or normative ethical theories are asking questions or ask questions and study what should or ought I to do? And particularly relevant to virtue ethics, also, how should one be? And so what these two um, questions show is that there's something rather different at the centre of ethical reasoning for the virtue ethicist. So that first question, what should one do, and the theories of utilitarianism and Kantian deontology, they're putting actions very much centre stage. And an action could be evaluated in terms of its consequences and its instrumental good, if you like, or it may be judged in terms of the right or wrong thing to do by reference to the motivations of the agent and their duties and the intrinsic good. But the virtue ethicist and the second question, how should one be, begins with this idea of what makes for a flourishing or a worthwhile life. So that's not to ignore the importance of actions or acting, but it's locating that action and that agency within an account of context, social relations, social relations constitutive of the good life for the individual. So it's a very different approach to normative ethics. It's a very different normative ethical theory. Great. Thanks, Beth. That's a good uh, opening. And we're going to, I'm sure, come back to that interesting discussion and kind of tension almost mm. uh, in normative ethics and, and the, the different perspectives these normative theories or stances um, uh, give us. So does one of you want to, Michael, Dan, do you want to carry the story on and think about what in general is going on with Aristotle and his virtue ethics and, and possibly what virtues are we actually thinking about and possibly what, what vices <laughs> to get things a little bit concrete? So who wants to go next? I'll happily um, say say something and then uh, so, someone else can pick up the story because um, I think it's interesting uh, what Beth said about the difference here being this question of, you know, what kind of person we should be, you know, and sort of what the good life is being 
distinct to virtue ethics and not the other ethical theories we've seen because i think when people think about ethics and philosophy and you know these, these questions what's the meaning of life and if you're going well you know what what do you do in certain situations what's right and wrong you're kind of expecting that to be about well leading to a good life and it's kind of odd and i think it's important to sort of dwell on that a moment that some of these other theories that that you look at on the course or we've looked at on the podcast aren't even if they're answering questions of what ought i to do in certain situations necessarily saying and that will lead to to a good life or this idea of flourishing that you mentioned because you could end up doing things following rules or getting in goals but your end goal isn't necessarily the good life for you it might be something else like you know maximizing happiness or something so i think this approach that it's that it's an anomaly in normative ethical theories uh, that we've looked at so far speaks maybe to a deficiency in some of those theories that hopefully if this is any good will be a really welcome thing to to come to and i guess you know the fact that it's from aristotle before you can't and you you bent them is 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 strange it either suggests that it doesn't work and they therefore had to come along and come up with this these new ways of looking at ethics because this old virtue approach didn't necessarily work so well or there's a reason that for some reason we ignored what was already there this wisdom from the past and started doing something else that ended up giving us ethics without the question of what would a good life be but i think um to sort of continue the story i guess i guess aristotle um we should point out is is trying to work that question out in the way he sort of worked everything out which is looking at things and trying to figure out what the point of it is, which was sort of Aristotle's uh, big approach to, to many things. This idea of if you if you look at something, you should be able to f- figure out what it's for, what it's doing, what its purpose is. And it's probably worth saying that he has this idea that everything does have a purpose. So there's a sort of presupposition there that, that we need to be aware of that Aristotle's looking at the world at life at people and going you know what is their purpose because he does believe everything has some sort of telos goal in thing it's it's aiming at so it's sort of if you've got that already in your head then it, the question of what, what's a good life what does a good life consist of seems quite an easy thing to solve you look at a person and they go okay well what are they looking for what are they what is their goal that they're trying to achieve and then we'll figure out if that's the goal then I guess what do you do to achieve that goal would be what the good life is. And then if that's what you ought to do to achieve the goal, that's ethics. So there's a there's a logic to it that, that comes from this sort of scientific approach or pre-scientific approach that Aristotle is doing where he's, he's observing the world, thinking things have purposes. We can figure out what the purpose is. And then the thing that achieves the purpose would be the right thing to do for that thing. Uh, and the thing in this case, I guess, is the human being and their lives. Great. Thanks, Dan. That's really helpful. Michael, uh, what, what do you want to add in our opening thoughts? Well, I can, I can sort of pick up on that. I think we should certainly come back to, to Dan's great questions about why Bentham and Kantian theories kind of moved away from virtue ethics. Perhaps when we, when we talk about the comparisons between deontology and utilitarianism and virtue ethics. So yeah, it'd be, it'd be really interesting to talk about that a little bit further. But building on where, where sort of Dan got to in thinking about this, this notion of how to approach a question as to what a good life is for people, that was then was Aristotle's kind of overall central concept, the way that a utilitarian will talk about happiness or a Kantian will talk about duty or the goodwill. So, so for, for Aristotle, this notion of the good life was his central concept, which he called eudaimonia, 
not just him, everybody in Greece at the time was calling it eudaimonia because that's what it is. So he wanted to then try and think about the way in which the kind of thing that we are as people, the kinds of things we are, could, could give him an answer to the question, so what is a flourishing life or a good life for a human being? So he had a general approach to this in, in terms of solving the, the idea of something's purpose or something's good functioning. We might use a, a slightly broader term in terms of thinking about the, how something achieves its, its goal. So he, he wants to say, well, if you want to start from this idea of a good life for a person, you have to, you have to appeal to human nature. And that perhaps is a, one of the differences that he had, which in the 20th century, some philosophers such as Sartre really questioned, is there such a thing as human nature? And he really thinks that there is, that it's, it's biologically grounded, but it's, it's more than that. But he does think it's sort of based in, in, in those ideas. And he thinks, well, really, there's kind of there's these different elements that we can talk about which make up a human life. There's the purely physical or biological. That's not distinctively human. Animals have bodies and plants have bodies and so on. And then we can turn to the mind and we can think about what's distinctive about the human mind. We can think, well, we have perception and pleasure and pain and so on. And again, Yes, that's, that's definitely part, an important part of what it is to be a human being. But again, animals share that. Um, but it was Aristotle who defined human beings as rational animals. And so this is the kind of the genus, the kind of thing we are as an animal. And what kind of animal are we? We're, a, we're a, the species, we're a rational animal. So the, he, he focused his account of what it is to lead a good life on the basis of this idea that we are reasoning beings. And then he kind of delves further into that, still giving us his analysis of what it is to be a human in order to find out what a good life for a human being would be like. And he says, okay, well, if we look at the way that reason works, we can kind of think of it as having two components. There's those parts of our minds, desires and emotions and so on, which are in us at least responsive to reasoning. And he calls them passions precisely because they're passive in response to reason. So they can be manipulated or respond their responses rather than generating reasons themselves. And then there's the active part of reason, which he identifies with the intellect, um, not meaning just purely theoretical intellect. We can think practically about the world as well as kind of in terms of scientific investigation, we can kind of think about what to do. So he thinks that's kind of the structure of, of the human mind, if you like. And so... He comes up with the idea then that, that what we can do to live the best human life is going to be to live the life of reason or live a life in accordance with reason. And then the rest of his famous book on ethics, The Nicomachean Ethics, is an attempt to kind of spell out um, what it would be to, to live a life according to reason. So what I've kind of just sort of summed up as partly an analysis of human nature, but his, what's also known as his function argument. In order to discover what the good life is for human beings, you have to discover what's characteristic of human beings, what our function or ergon is. And then we can figure out what is what are good traits for a human being, what will be the traits that help us lead the good life by thinking about, well, what will help us fulfill that function? So he wants to suggest that what's characteristic of us as human beings is a life of reason. So that's our function. And so our virtues, those traits of our mind, um, of our reason, of our emotions, of our desires, which will help us live a life of reason, that's what he's going to call virtues. And so his virtue ethics is an attempt to kind of give a description of those 
traits of a human mind, those psychological traits of reasoning and of emotions, which will enable us to lead a life according to reason. Great. That's really helpful, Michael, to give us some of those details. Let's just pause there for the students. And I'll just give a quick summary of where we've got to from from all three of you. And then I'm going to ask three of you a question just for the rest of this segment, and then we'll move on to perhaps some more details. So, so Beth started us off just getting us straight into the zone that, yes, virtue ethics or virtue theories, it sometimes might be called, is kind of part of the family of normative ethics. But it's kind of seeming, it's just doing a different sort of thing, possibly. And there's an interesting tension perhaps that we'll explore a little bit later whether it's it can be made to do the same thing that utilitarianism deontology are, are, are out are out to do certainly as as uh, they're normally summarized when we when we teach them for a level indeed at, at university level that's a really important thing to think about and then um key things that dan's introduced us to is just the very idea of 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 teleology so dan used this word telos which means end in greek and so what we think about is teleology a kind of purpose or an end so often you might come across the phrase teleological ethics so that's what we're doing here and that's really important when we're going back to beth's question what sort of person should i be there's something about human beings and a human life having a certain sort of purpose, which then then Michael took on and say, look, you know, we're coming embodied creatures. We've got bodies, animals, plants, and so on. And there's a certain sort of purpose that we all have. So remember, Aristotle's not just a philosopher as like a modern day philosopher might be. Aristotle's thinking about lots of different topics, in particular, thought a lot about uh, biology, as as, uh, as Michael mentioned. And so then Michael continues the story and thinking about, you know, what's different between us and, you know, my my tree outside in my garden or or whatever it might be well i can reason i can respond to reasons and i've got certain characteristics or virtues and indeed vices as well and so that's going to be helping to situate us uh in the in the in the world so yeah just let's let's carry the story on one notch and then we'll pause for this segment and then carry on the story a little bit more because there's there's lots of different moving pieces so uh, we've we've had this idea introduced of, of eudaimonia, which Michael introduced, and as, as Michael said, this was used uh, by 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 Greeks. I don't know how many Greeks were using it. Probably many of them. Um, should we just just dwell a little bit on 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 that and try and give people a sense of what eudaimonia means? Because this often slips slips people up straight away because they think. You know, because often there are different translations from ancient Greek to English or ancient Greek to another language. And so when it's translated in English, it's often um, translated as pleasure or happiness or well-being. Should we just dwell a little bit on that and just tease out what eudaimonia might might mean a little bit more with those different words? Do you want to have a go at, go at that? Yeah, I'm happy to have a go at that. I suppose just pulling on some points from earlier, though, to lead into that is that Obviously, Dan left us thinking a little bit about human beings, and Michael was talking about our human nature. To understand what eudaimonia is, and it's roughly translated as this idea of human flourishing, it might be worth just thinking about, again, who is the human being? Because if you understand the human being and the person in a very different way, as all the different ethical theories do, what it is to flourish is then going to be incredibly different. So if you think about personhood from a utilitarian perspective, that's the sentient agent, if you like, or a sentient being. And to some extent, you need to be rational to do some of the things the utilitarians want you to do. And then you've got the Kantian agent that's or the the rational moral agency, which is asking you, what 
does rationality require? You've got the rational moral agent. But you've got this very different approach to the human being and personhood in Aristotle. Michael talks about this with the rational animal. But it's also a rational animal that is, and Aristotle says this in the Nicomachean Ethics, a community-dwelling being. And therefore, that interdependency, which you don't get in the Kantian ethical approach or the utilitarian ethical approach is going to mean what it is to flourish is going to be incredibly different because of that interdependence. And I think that's why there's such excitement about this theory, because that's been so lost, that kind of the the, in, the obsession of the individual and the abstraction that has happened in the other theories has meant that it's very different to flourish and, and to have a life of happiness for the, for the virtue ethicist. But um. And I just think that's an important thing to stress for the students. You know, what's what's the moral agent at the heart of this theory? And then you get into this idea of um, eudaimonia and this idea of human flourishing or happiness. And that, that it's this thing, this aim that should be governing our lives, these lives that are amongst others. You know, this sort of, again, this community dwelling being. That So, yes, it, you could say it's the pursuit of happiness or pleasure. Um, but it's achieved when we become virtuous and he's arguing or Aristotle's arguing that this is a process and we grow towards this by practicing the virtues. And it's a little bit like learning to do other things and you you practice and you develop the, the habits, you develop the virtues and um, you grow towards this. And then that's so that's another very distinctive part of the theory that this is a period of growth. And it's going to take a long time to get there. You're not just going to be right or wrong. So that's how I'd start the story. I'd think a little bit about what it is to be a human being and how that would be, therefore, what it is to flourish would be very different. Yeah, I also think um, eudaimonia, one of, the, one of the things that people try and do is reduce it to something like, is it happiness? And then you go, well, why is it different from utilitarianism? And I think the resistance of eudaimonia to be reduced to just it means this is speaking to this wider idea of virtue to say it, it there's diverse virtues that we need to develop there's it's not just one end for a human individual's life like like Beth said it's a, a community of humans and each individual in that community has got different things contextually at different times which we'll probably come on to as we look at things like the doctrine of the mean but it, there, there is no clear it is it is the goal it's the this end goal that we're, we're trying to seek but it is complicated because we're complicated beings with complicated interconnected lives, interconnected desires, interconnected interests and things that all have their own end and, and, and goal. And I think it's worth pointing out that eudaimonia is supposed to be this sort of end, final end, self-sufficient thing, in it, you know, thing that we're all aiming to, that in a way all the other ends are aiming to because they contribute to this end of flourishing, which again gets confused because people say so is basically everything is that that is this one big important goal and you can then reduce everything to eudaimonia but you could also say well no but what it means is everyone else is doing things in different ways for this sort of almost un ir irreducible thing called eudaimonia that you can't just say is this very clear common goal that everyone has but it's recognizable in what everyone shares in it which is this sense of flourishing for themselves or their community that might mean for this person they are trying to achieve six different ends which all have a end of eudaimonia if you flourish in those things it will lead to that and for someone else it might just be one thing that they need to do to sort of develop their particular flourishing but it, it allows in that word by not reducing it to something the possibility of 
lots of different goals that people are sort of striving towards that make up an overall flourishing person or different virtues. And I think it shows the sensitivity that an ethicist needs to have to situation and you know what, what's going on at a particular time in a particular society as well as your own uh, deeper understanding of sort of what the right thing would be now for me in this situation compared to what it might be for you in a different situation even if the situations have similarities can i pick up on on that point because i think one of the that i mean that's that's really useful to sort of put that up front and center with with aristotle this sensitivity to individuals and to, to context but it's also something which um perhaps it's worth saying that for for him it's not a subjective matter as well you might think so does does any goal that i pursue count as eudaimonia for me and aristotle is just very clear in saying no <laughs> so 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 the the best life for you is not necessarily what you think is the best life for you people can make mistakes and he thinks actually that's what happens when people are bad or people do wrong things they've made a mistake about what they think is the best thing to do and so on the one hand, he has this sort of interesting combination. On the one hand, he's quite objective about his ethics. He thinks that, you know, there is something which is the right thing to do, or these are the right character traits for a person to develop. And, and that sounds like, okay, so he's going to have to be very prescriptive. He's going to have to say everyone has to be like this and so on. But on the other hand, Aristotle doesn't want to do that. He's not making universal rules the way, say, Kant wants to do. And I think students can sometimes find that quite difficult. Like if something is objective, doesn't it have to be the same for everyone? Um, and Aristotle wants to say, no, no, what is absolutely the best life for you is an objective matter. And you could be wrong about it. And other people who are wiser than you or who have more life experience than you or who even know you better than yourself could, in fact, have a better idea as to what will truly make you flourish and truly make you happy over a long period of time. And one of the main ways in which we go wrong as human beings, according to Aristotle, is we confuse short-term immediate pleasure, a kind of superficial happiness as a feeling, for a long-term flourishing life or a long-term flourishing character um, as well. So he wants to say, as Dan said, you know, there's a lot of room for a lot of different goals in his theory, which contribute to individuals' flourishing lives. But that doesn't rule out the way that people can actually make mistakes um, he's not he's not a subjectivist or a relativist in that sense of thinking anything goes. Yeah, thanks, Michael. That's really, really helpful and really important to understand when it comes to Aristotle. OK, listen, uh, three of you, let's um, leave that there. And we'll see you in the next part when we continue the story, thinking a little bit more about um, Aristotle's virtue ethics. And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, this is just to remind you to check out our website. If you search for my personal website, Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N, you'll see some tabs at the top. And one of those tabs says Pod Schools. Click on that and you'll see the topics that we're recording any one time. I try and keep them up to date. Um, if you see something that's coming up and you want, you've got some questions or comments about that topic, please feel free to email me. We'd love to incorporate some of your questions and ideas into the recording. Um, if you've got some questions uh, about topics we've already done a recording on, please email me because I might get some people back in and I might just do some Q&A roundtables with them and fire them 
fire questions at them uh, that they are uh, unaware of and we'll see what they answer so we might get beth and michael and dan back to answer all things about aristotle and virtue ethics okay so we've talked about normative ethics uh briefly and then set set things going for virtue ethics and, and aristotle we did we introduced the idea of, of uh, eudaimonia and um, we thought about the function argument so michael do you want to recap the function argument and just lay out again some of the moving parts and then we can think about um, some concrete virtues that then help us to explain and illustrate some of those moving parts. Sure. So the function argument is connecting the, the big question, what is good for human beings, with the much smaller questions like, so how do I need to be, you know, specifically? Um, and it's, so it's Aristotle's way of, of getting from the very big question to much more kind of focused questions, which we're moving on to. So from the notion of what is the good for human beings, he says, well, when we ask the question, what is the good for anything, we need to have a good sense as to what that thing is. And as Dan said earlier, he thinks of that in terms of what's its purpose or its function. So he then thinks, okay, so what, it is, it, what is it about human beings that makes it something characteristically you know, human? And he argues that that's got to do with our ability to live a life according to reason. And so he then says, so if our, if our eudaimonia, most abstractly described, a good life for a human being is living a life according to reason, then we're going to need certain traits, certain traits about in, to do with reasoning, such as um, the ability to think clearly or certain ways of feeling emotions or having desires. And these are virtues. These are either virtues of character, if they're related to what I call our passions, our emotions and desires, or they're virtues of intellect, if they're um, related to our ability to think through a problem and make a decision. So that's how it comes to, to, to virtue ethics. So a virtue for him is going to be a trait of a human being which enables us as human beings to achieve the best life or the flourishing life for us. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Michael. So Dan, do you want to continue the story and get us to think about one or two concrete virtues that will help illustrate things? Yes, as, as Michael said, there are these traits uh, of character or, or intellect, depending on the, the virtues we're looking at. And some have also called them the top dispositions to act in certain ways to, to show you have a, you have a virtue uh, would mean that in a certain situation, you would act sort of in the right way, as opposed to the wrong way. So already we're thinking, well, what does that mean? How, how do you define the right way to act or the wrong way to act? And how do you find these, these virtues? Well, you work, as you say, once we know eudaimonia is this end we're trying to get, what helps us flourish, we think of things that we observe humans and we go, well, what do they do that works in the good way? And what do they do that's too much or too little of that particular trait that they would need? So courage is always the first one you use. I think it might be the first Aristotle uses, but we know courage sounds like a good thing. It's good to be courageous. And we can see examples where people do courageous things and it helps them flourish because it you know keeps them alive for one thing. It might also just remind us uh, to stand up for things that are important to us as a community or as individuals. So courage sounds like a good thing. But we're also aware there are some people who maybe show too much courage. Uh, they're, they're a bit rash. They jump in at the first sign of any danger and you know maybe get themselves killed or jeopardize the health of the community or whatever. And that's not great. Um, and there's also people who have not enough courage at all, so they're cowardly and they you know, stay stay away from any fight and nothing. You know they don't they don't uh, flourish at all because they they don't let themselves. They're, they're too scared to flourish. So you can sort of look at that and go right that there are behaviors and, and traits and characteristics that 
are seemingly unvirtuous, so things like cowardice and rashness. And then there's that virtuous one, which is like knowing in the right situation when to stand up for what's right, when to uh, go into battle, when to you know go fight for for the for the right thing. And that, to Aristotle, sort of shows us that okay, there is a behaviour we can find between maybe some excesses and deficiencies. So there's lots of different ones he talks about. You know, you could be very modest, which is good to be to be modest in the right way. But you don't want to be so modest that you're shy and you fade into the background. But you also need a little bit of modesty because you don't want to be totally shameless and brag about everything all the time. Again, it's probably going to lead to more flourishing if you can temper that uh, that that excess and, and 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 not fall into deficiency. The nice one as well, I always like is wit. That he, he recognises the virtue of wit. You can't be a, a, a buffoon like certain people, maybe prime ministers, and and just constantly do things that are basically stupid, not funny. They're, they're just constant, unthinking, big, big, you know, preposterousness. Uh, and you also don't want to be um, totally boring and not be funny at all at any point and, you know, never even crack a joke. So there's a place for humour, there's a place for wit, and, and you've got to know when that is. And with all of these, I think the theme that comes from that is it's all good and well to draw a little series of excess, uh, the virtue, deficiency, grid, and say, well, here's a list of nice virtues and here's too little or too much. But then it becomes this list of, of, of objective rules. And I think this is a nice example of what Michael was saying about there's an objectivity, but there's also this room I was talking about for sort of a subjectivity. Because yes, courage is definitely the virtue that we've discovered. Modesty, uh, wit, these are definitely the virtues and the excess and deficiency are clear and objective. But what it actually means to be courageous is very different in the situation. What it means to be witty is very different in the situation. You know, the level of wit you show at a funeral is going to be very different than the level of wit you show at a stand-up comedy show. The courage that you show in war is going to be different than the courage you show in your office when your boss suggests something and you disagree with it. And knowing the correct dose of that at the right time is is this thing called the doctrine of the mean, which is another one of these misleading terms because it sounds with the word mean that we always just go into the middle, almost like a sort of Buddhist middle way. So whatever is the middle. But it just means, like I say, the middle between excess and deficiency, but it's not a mathematical formula. The excess, the deficiency and the you know Goldilocks just right amount is different depending on the situation, which then leads us to go, well, how do we figure out what's right? Yeah. And there's this sort of other thing called phrenesis, the sort of practical wisdom to know what is the right amount, which is another virtue you have to sort of develop, a sort of overriding virtue to be able to use and identify all the other virtues in a way. Um, so it's not just having these virtues, but knowing how to use them in the right way. And I think, um, you know, we've talked yeah. in the podcast on uh, on Kant about acting in accordance with versus actually uh, you know doing things out of duty in the right way and it's similar to virtue ethics you can accidentally hit the virtue and act in accordance with the virtue I happen to be courageous but I wasn't thinking about being courageous I just accidentally did it or it was a fluke or whatever um, or I can have this sort of sense of I know in this situation what the courageous thing to do is and I'm now a virtuous person and I I, I I do it in the right way. But as you can see, to, to get the difference between those things would require some sort of deep understanding yeah. and training, maybe practice at trying to develop these virtues in a way that you can 
naturally become the sort of person who does the right mean of the right virtue at the right time. And that's the challenge of a, of a life, really, how to do that. Okay, great. Thanks, Dan. That's really helpful. So yeah, just to recap, yeah. doctrine of the mean doesn't mean the doctrine of the average or the middle every time. The better way to think about it is right action from right motives to an appropriate amount. But exactly what that's going to be in each situation is going to be different. I mean, the only thing I'd say, Dan, is you should have come to, to some funerals with me and come to some stand-up gigs because some funerals I've been to are more hilarious than some stand-up gigs. But that's a, that's another matter. Mm. Um, and, and you just introduced the idea of – so there's a number of moving parts here. Let's carry on listing the moving parts, and then towards the end of the segment, we'll try and bring them back in some order with people, right? So you're just introducing the idea of practice, mm. and a word we haven't used yet, I don't think, is habit. Yeah. But but in the previous segment, Beth was talking about perhaps repetition or craft. So actually, Beth, do you want to carry on the story about habits and yeah, crafts? Yeah, sure. And, and I suppose, and something, something to say, I suppose, just in that relation in relation to what Dan was just saying, and Michael um, draws this out really brilliantly in his textbook, because the students can get a little bit confused about what we can naturally do, in that he very succinctly talks about how we're not naturally virtuous, but we are naturally capable of becoming virtuous. And I think that's a really important um, point to stress with the students. And, um, And just to pull it together, we've got this sense of, so Dan has explained what the virtues are but now we need to think about this means by which we acquire them because we know they're really really important because they're necessary for eudaimonia and so aristotle says in the nicomachean ethics that we acquire them um, we acquire the virtues of character through habit and these habits start through our upbringing and they develop through through our lives and um and just to stress that point again we need to develop virtue because we're not just virtuous um, by nature we have to develop this we have to develop this through experience this can't just be taught Um, we need to have the experience of this and I suppose something just to stress with the students because they get a little bit confused here in that they really like this idea of being able to understand the theory in a nutshell if you like so they often say oh with utilitarianism it's just the greatest good for the greatest number how can you just surmise virtue ethics in a sentence and you could sort of say well you know, what would the most virtuous person I know do? But that's quite misleading. And it's really hard because this theory is so complex. And like you say, it has all these different parts that that's not enough. That's not enough just to say, well, what would the most virtuous person do? Um, okay, I'll just have, I'll develop the habits. Um, I'll, I'll, that'll be enough. It, it, it won't be enough because and Aristotle talks about, well, if you want to be good at building, you must build. If you want to be good at playing the harp, you play the harp. But he's also very, very clear about the fact that there are ways you get credit, if you like, and there's ways you would lose credit. And there are lots of things you could do that might appear as if you're developing habits or avoiding problematic habits, but they're not um, they're not you being virtuous. They're not you exhibiting um, virtue. So I think that's kind of quite an interesting thing to reflect on a little bit in that it's not okay, as Dan said, to be brave by accident. You have to be rationally aware that you are being courageous. So you can't be, yes, it's good to develop the habit of bravery, but it's that habit in the right conditions and it's being consciously and rationally aware of it. It's also got to be... um, a choice. It can't be that there was no option but to be anything but 
courageous. It has to feel like there was a choice. And there are other things that we can talk about in the podcast that he's very um, he's very clear about. And I think this is important to stress and will probably come up in a later part of the, of the segments in that it's a, a, a big criticism for a lot of um, people that virtue ethics isn't clear about how you develop the virtues and how you foster these habits and how you know when you've mastered a virtue or not. But I think he actually does give a lot of clarity on that personally. Okay, that's great. J- just to just to pause there. I mean, I don't think a word we've we've mentioned yet, but the word I often use with my students is a kind of enculturation. So you're there in a community, kind of yep. practicing through habit various sorts, certain sorts of actions. And I mean, I often think that with virtues, the the key thing is it's not just your acting; it's a kind of almost an epistemic kind of uh, aspect yeah. to them in that you can see situations in certain ways and having acted in certain sorts of sorts of ways in previous situations you then see this type of situation or this particular situation now as one that's requiring bravery or requiring wit in fact just to to go with with Dan's example of the funeral I mean I was only half joking when I said some some funerals can be hilarious I can think of particular funerals I've been to where the the person who died was actually loved jokes and so either you know both before or after the service or sometimes in the service people were telling jokes partly as a mark of respect to the the person and honoring that person during the during the service or before or afterwards it was exactly appropriate that that happened and so you're only you'll only understand that if you've if you've well, been to lots of funerals, but if you've been around people and, yeah. and kind of and, and, and understood that, uh, Michael, you want to come? Can in? I you probably said something? Yeah, can wrong. I pick up on that point? No, it's it's, it's specifically on that. On, on trying to think how we can connect those. How can habits lead to how you change, how you view situations, and so on? And and Beth mentioned learning to play the harp, an mm-hmm. instrument. And I think the the kind of bit that helps maybe make that connection is when you first of all you just practice you do what your teacher tells you you know you do your scales and you you play your piece and but somewhere I don't know round about you know getting quite good so kind of grade five grade seven grade eight something like that you're getting really quite proficient at this your teacher might say well, okay well you you work out what the fingering should be for this passage and you kind of see well it just it makes sense to do it like this, doesn't it? Or hopefully after a few practices of that, you do. And so you kind of, people do say, well, well, it just made sense. Or, you know, what should the bowing be if we move to a, a violin or something like that? And there's a point at which you kind of get, the music's not telling you how to play it, yeah. but you kind of just see or you understand intuitively how, how to play it. Or maybe with, with improvisation, if you were doing something like, like jazz, you just kind of, you reach a certain point of proficiency where you just, you almost hear yourself or watch yourself play a phrase, which just works really well with the people around you. And you've started jamming and that's kind of how the whole thing. So once you've reached the, those first stages of musicianship, the, the, the analogy here, what, what Aristotle calls the skill analogy is that virtue, developing virtue is like that, that once you stop being told what to do, and you can actually go, well, this is what feels right. Then you've kind of started to develop what you're talking about, Simon, which is you see situations in certain sorts of ways that this situation calls for this kind of response. And I think that's kind of one of the main things he wanted to sort of emphasize with comparing the idea of being a good person in the sense of developing virtues and playing a musical instrument, because they seem like they're really, really different. You know, 
but I think that's kind of what he wanted to get in that that kind of habit is, as you say, it's kind of psychologically transformative, yeah. not just in the sense that you dispose to do things, but you see and understand social situations as they unfold around you as this is the time to crack a joke. This is the time to do this action, which would be courageous. This is not the time to brag about my latest, whatever it is. It's the time for modesty. And you just, and, and that's what it is to be a virtuous person. It's to be able to intuitively respond, intuitively, but not unselfconsciously yeah. necessarily, to be able to read and respond to situations around. Exactly. Professor um, Tamar Gendler talks about this really well. And I've often used her, her Yale lectures with the students to help draw this out. So she talks, she draws on your sort of ideas, Simon, that you just mentioned, but she talks about that phenom- phenomenological idea. But she reminds them that, yes, there's this sort of inner awareness of this you becoming more proficient at something and it becoming more of a a state for you, but also that you're still this social being and and that you're drawing the two together. And it's this lovely sense of wholeness that there is this sense of you, you've become the musician, but you're the musician in context as well. And she draws really nicely on um, Julia Annis's work and how that, yes, it's really important to remember that, you know, you mustn't be copying and you mustn't, it must be a live decision or a real decision. It must feel like a, a rational choice. But also she talks about that lovely idea of getting into a sort of state of flow. And um, she draws student to, students to that really fantastic TED talk by um, uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, that amazing um, psychologist who talks about there becomes a point where it's just, it's just you. You're in a state of flow, but it's you. And I think that's really a a lovely sort of process to take the pupils and students on from those kind of, it feels like copying. It feels like you're going through the motions. um, You're you're doing it finger by finger. And then you you could potentially get into this wonderful sort of state of flow and this this great awareness of you are the musician. It's who you are. Uh, So the other thing Anas points out that I think is really good about this as a sort of strength of the theory is when it starts with copying and then, you know, you're your own independent musician or moral virtuous person, it feels almost like, okay, so we never make progress. We're just constantly copying our community and learning a skill. So you could argue that if I teach everyone the guitar and I want all my students to go off and learn how to play the guitar, they will be in this lovely flow state, but are they just going to play guitar? And it's, we never move on. But as you see with things like music, people start to do new things that they once they become confident independent musicians they will break boundaries of things that were never done before and they'll start doing new things which then become new norms which are then you know you'll learn how to do it like that person did which their forefather before people before that would not have thought is how you play the instrument Mm. so with ethics it's the same it doesn't mean that just because we in aristotle's day for example slavery is okay and women aren't allowed to have votes and things like that it doesn't mean we learn that we practice that we develop that and because in aristotle's day that's what the community said was was the virtuous thing obviously it's not the virtuous thing and over time people have developed their own way of sort of engaging with the world and making new decisions and it doesn't mean that because you might have inculcated the the wrong virtues from a historical vantage point um, in the past than, than what we have now. So that means there's a problem with, with the virtue theory. It means part of the, the benefits or the strength of it is it is it is adaptable and flexible while still maintaining those sort of objective ideas of there are there are some virtues that we agree to. It's just what does, what they actually mean when cashed out in our actions. Mm. Great. So just to. Just two thoughts from me, uh, partly as a, as a summary, partly to take things 
on a on notch. So something that's been rattling around my head for a while is um, something that Aristotle says towards the start of the Nicomachean Ethics, which I always think is one of the wisest things that that any philosopher said in the Western tradition. That that's you know that should be flashing light, shouldn't it? One of the wisest things anyone's ever said. And and when he's talking about ethics, saying that the the level of detail, the level of specificity that's required, that's demanded the situation might be different for different areas of human life or human knowledge. So maths is going to be very specific. I mean, Aristotle thought a lot about maths and thought a lot about formal logic. There you've got very, what we might describe as definite, concrete, specific answers. In the case of ethics, it's going to be less specific because that's what's what's required. And of course, as we see, there are sometimes there are ethical theories some versions of utilitarianism some versions of deontology perhaps not not all but some which try to get things very specific and that seems good it's giving us concrete assurance that if we do this then things will be fine but but then what happens is clever clogs philosophers come along and provide lots of counterexamples, and we say oh well that rule wasn't very good was it it's probably because it's so specific whereas aristotle's trying to leave things a bit more open and we'll get on to action guidance, I think, in the in the third segment. But at least that that that's where he, mm. he is. And then a second thought, perhaps just to the students. So we've mentioned uh, a few examples uh, in this segment so far about how you might think of ethics, at least according to, to Aristotle. So um, we've mentioned, you know, telling jokes or just being witty in various situations. We've we've thought from both Michael and Dan about playing a musical instrument and then getting into improvisation there might be other examples so for example learning to drive a car and then having been a driver for about 20 years on the road those might you might be different ways of driving a car people often talk about sports stars getting into the zone and all of these are kind of there's differences between them but they're kind of similar it might be just an exercise for any student to think about some other examples um, or perhaps just take one of these examples and write out how uh, Beth Beth used this word, you know, phenomenologically, right? How does it feel yeah. being that sort of person, learning to drive a car, becoming more proficient, coming across a situation which is quite difficult and perhaps a bit dangerous and how you cope with it? And think about that in relation then to, to, uh, to ethics. Hmm. Um, just one example that came to mind is that once you've had children, you uh, really find virtue ethics teaching quite fun because you're really um, going through new habits and then it takes a while to get in the flow. And my goodness, I probably won't get there until I'm a bit older, but it really feels like a growth example and one that um, takes a bit of skill and practice. But um, I'm, yeah, different example, good, but yeah, that's no. that come to my mind. Another Another good example, in fact, un unlike the others, having to do that when you're very tired, I think, is yes. really interesting as well. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so then, then I thought back to you guys, because we, we've had a few moving parts. Um, and we've, and I feel that we've kind of left, we, we've gone into habits, which has been great. It's, it's absolutely essential to do, think about doctrine of meaning and habits. We've left eudaimonia kind of hanging up there as this, this grand end. So can we just think a bit more about eudaimonia and fill in some of the thoughts about more specific ends that we might have in mind, because Aristotle talks a bit about about that. So does anyone want to fill in that and then connect it to what we've been talking about? Um, sure, I can I can um, say a little bit about what he what he thinks. I mean, it was a big question in the debates of ethics of the day 
um, when Aristotle was writing, and everybody was, as I say, lots of people were talking about eudaimonia, but there wasn't that much agreement on what it consisted in. So yes, we all want to have a good life, but you know, what's the good life? And roughly, there were three schools, kind of three schools of thought, I suppose, that we can find. And you might still find, you can just think of these as characters, um, types of people. So one group of people just say, what's pleasure? Right. It's just a, it's a life of pleasure. Let's just go for a life of pleasure. All right. That's, that seems important. And um, other people will say, well, it's a life of honor. It's a life of action and fame and acclaim. You know, that, that's what we want to be a sportsman or a politician or to, to be recognized and famous. That's, that's what is really important in some way. And other people will go, no, it's wealth. Yeah, let's, let's be rich. <laughs> um, and I think we can still find these temptations to think of life in these in these ways. You know, what do you want to do when you leave school? You know, you, I want to be really rich. I want to be financially free by the age of 21. Or, you know, I'm going to go into politics and I'm going to lead people in. Or, you know, I just want to, you know, I just want a life of pleasure. So Aristotle thinks, well, these are certainly important goals. And then we can also say, well, there's this, uh, a fourth, I suppose, a life of knowledge or something something along those lines. So we have these kind of main ideas, you know, there's the academic and there's the businessman and there's the politician and there's the hedonist. And as I say, they're kind of types. And each of these people are living life according to a kind of model as to what eudaimonia might consist in. And that's when he sort of says, okay, so my view is this, and I've talked about living according to this life of reason and how do I kind of unpack that? And he says, well, look, these are all really important things that we want. And obviously there are other things we want, like health. You know, we all want to be healthy and we think that being healthy is a good part of life. But what's, what, is, what is really the importance of any of these things in relation? You know, why do we want any of those? Why do you want knowledge? Why do you want wealth? Why do you want pleasure? And there's some ways in which you can kind of go, well, I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> you know, it kind of ends up, why, if someone says, why do you want to be happy? You just look at them like they're a philosopher or something. I don't know. It's like, so there's not a question which has, a, has a, an obvious answer. And he says, well, but hang on. Let's then think about what people find under this. So people who want to be honored, do they want to be honored by anybody? And very often, no. You know, you, you, know, you want people to honor you who you have some kind of respect for often. Not everybody has that kind of view. So what is it that you want to be honored for? Or well, normally people want to be honored for some kind of achievement, I suppose, until Andy Warhol's famous for 15 minutes in which you just want to be, you want to be famous just because most people want to have achieved something. Or they recognize there's good honoring and bad honoring. And there's a difference between being empty fame and, you know, something which is really. So that seems to suggest that it's the achievement which grounds what's good about the honor. Or again, with your wealth, what are you going to do with it? Right? You want to be wealthy for what purpose? Well, you could say so that people honor me. Okay, well, now you're in honor again. Or you could say, well, because I want to spend it on stuff. But what do you want? What is that about? Why? Well, it's just a life of pleasure. Okay, so wealth is really for the life of pleasure. So what kinds of things are pleasant? So we can kind of ask that sort of a question. So what sorts of things do you think will make you truly happy? Are the pleasures which are fading, which would be just a complete waste of your money? You know, is you need that seventh Ferrari? Is it? Does it fill that gaping hole in your life, or whatever it is? And so he starts to ask these sort of deeper questions and says, "Yeah, well, there's something good about wealth. Enough wealth, 
so that you can live a comfortable life and you're not having to worry a lot about the future yeah. and you know you can take care of your needs and maybe look after your family so let's not say that money is completely without worth but obviously the point of money is to achieve something with it not just to have it and honor yes it's good to be recognized but really good to be recognized for the right things yeah you don't want to be famous for being i don't know jack the ripper or something like that at least i hope not and and pleasure but what what's going to make people really happy with pleasure what's truly pleasant you know what's and, and is it just about pleasure i mean isn't that's what the animals mill makes the same argument you know and a, a life of animalistic pleasure doesn't seem to do human nature justice right there's more to you than that you're selling yourself short so he says, okay, well, we need bits of all of these. And by the way, what about this thing about knowledge and the use of the intellect? And that seems kind of really important. So that he says, well, we need to kind of draw this together. So eudaimonia has these different sorts of goals, but he says it's the only goal which can subsume all the others. So you can't fit everything in under honor, because as soon as you do, you have to say, so what do you want to be honored for? And then there's this other good thing, which isn't reducible to honor. And similarly with, with pleasure, he wants to disagree with the utilitarians to some extent. He thinks pleasures can be better or worse and good or bad um, according to you know, the way in which human nature is fulfilled by them. And, and so he says, so eudaimonia kind of draws all these together. So eudaimonia is a pleasant life, but it's a life, as we've already said, of, of virtues, which one where if you seek honor, you seek it for the right reasons, right? The first thing is to be virtuous. It's nice if people recognize that and go, wow, what a good person. That's not why you're doing it. That's kind of icing on the top. And, and knowledge is really good. He certainly thinks it is. But, and then we think, okay, so, so knowledge is part of the good life because we have these rational faculties. So we need these virtues of reason. And that's because it, it does indeed do something for us. So in the end, he has this idea, and people do disagree what his final view of, of eudaimonia is. I'm of the, what's called the inclusivist interpretation. I think that Aristotle thinks that the rational activities of the mind are the, the highest part of human flourishing. They're, but, but he, I think, some people think, and he thinks he pr just privileges those, but I think he situates them very much, as Beth was saying, within a social situation. Yes, we're a rational animal, but we're a social animal. And our reason, much of our reason is related to society. So it's really important that we have these virtues that enable us to live well with our community, to, to form these deep bonds. And so he spends He's one of the very few virtuous, um, sorry, one of the few theorists to really write about friendship yeah. at great length because he thinks having good friends is an enormously important part of a good life, something which unfortunately Mill thought Bentham rather missed in his essay on Bentham. So it's got lots of elements, as you kind of mentioned earlier, as Dan mentioned earlier, but that's how he wants to kind of say none of these elements on their own are quite, are quite sufficient for us. Great, that's really helpful, uh, Michael. Beth, Dan, have you got anything you want to add to that? I, I think that's a, a really nice sort of way of looking at the idea of it as a <laughs> this this inclusive final end, but it, it's a it's the end that the other ends are sort of included in. Like, and, and I think that inclusive uh, interpretation, I, I agree with as well. You know, it feels like the, the whole point of eudaimonia is it is supposed to encapsulate all this good stuff that we're we're aiming towards. Yeah. In multiple ways. Yeah, absolutely would agree. Going back to my point about, you know, what is he saying about who we are as human beings? I think it's really important to see this as a whole and not to think that means he's saying it's not good to be an animal 
he's still very much saying we're rational and we're animals we're rational animals but you should you should have a more layered approach to personhood you shouldn't be seeking to um be so uh conceptually combative I suppose Mary Midgley took this all on really well didn't she but I agree I think it should definitely be seen as a sort of whole and as a kind of layered approach I think that's brilliantly put Michael okay great listen thanks all three of you for that segment let's leave things there and we'll pick up the story again in the third segment uh, and think about some problems for virtue ethics and think about how it compares to some other normative themes And welcome back. Okay, so we've been talking uh, about lots of the various parts and aspects of Aristotle's take on our ethical lives. Um, there's one topic we haven't covered so far. We'll talk about that first and then get into some of the objections with what Aristotle says. So the topic we haven't talked about so far is a, is a really important part of our moral lives. We've been talking about doing right and wrong actions that naturally leads to thinking about what is it for an action to be right and wrong? What, what, what does Aristotle say about actions and about praise and blame? So there's often a three-way distinction that Aristotle draws between voluntary, non-voluntary and involuntary actions. So, Michael, do you want to explain that for us? Sure. Yeah. So, so when, we, when we praise or blame people, almost without exception, we, um, we only praise or blame them when the action was voluntary. So this distinction isn't exactly our distinction now about free will. Aristotle doesn't talk about free will. In fact, that's, that's kind of refreshing in some ways because he avoids that whole debate. Do we have free will? And could we, could we praise people, if, blame people if they didn't have free will? He says, well, hang on, you, you can just, we can put that to one side. That's actually really a later invention, I think, that notion of the will in that sense. So he wants to say, well, let's where we praise and blame people, quite rightly, is where they've acted voluntarily. So when we when we act voluntarily, we do something. We would say by we we are acting. Um, we know what we're doing, and we're bringing about what we're doing in some way deliberately. And so when it, something is not voluntary, he says there's really kind of normally two things which are going on there, or could be going on there. One is, he calls force, and the other he calls ignorance. So you're clearly not acting voluntarily when somebody literally forces you to do something. So if somebody grabs my hand and then forces me to punch in the, I don't know, the code for my ATM, my, my cash card and takes money, then I haven't voluntarily, you know, given them that money. So that's a kind of physical force which is used. But there could be psychological force as well. And so Aristotle recognizes, you know, a degree with no precise measure, but there's a degree of psychological pressure that could be brought to bear on someone, like threatening them with pain or threatening the people that they love with awful consequences. And they do something as a result of that, and that, that counts as, as not voluntary. But that, that pressure, he says, has got to be negative. You can't say, you know, if you do this, I'll give you cake. And then you say, I had no choice. He offered me cake. You know, that doesn't count for, for Aristotle. That still counts as voluntary. So, so something is only non-voluntary if the force that's brought to bear is, is a negative force. Um, but you can also do something not voluntarily when you don't really don't have a clue what you're doing. Now, this, is, this gets to really interesting, different kind of ways in which you might not know what you're doing. And this is where he, he makes his distinction between what's involuntary and what's non-voluntary. So it's, it's not voluntary 
um, we said, but it could be it could be involuntary if you do something where you don't know what you're doing and you regret the result. So you do something thinking it's going to lead to some. You're trying to achieve something, and you just what is it, take entirely the wrong means. You had no idea how to produce that. All sorts of you know, obvious ways in which you might want to say that was involuntary. Um, so, for example, you give some. You, somebody wants to buy someone that you love uh, a present that they they will just absolutely love. So you give them some advice. The truth is, you don't have a clue what this person actually likes. Despite the fact that you know you know you know that they they love them and so on, so you give them completely the wrong advice. They give them the the present, and you know, oh, you, I'm so sorry. You know, involuntarily gave them the wrong advice. It'd be quite different from from voluntarily lying to them. You know, so it was a complete mistake that you um, that you got there. There are other ways in which you might kind of just get something wrong. You're trying to fix your car, and you use the wrong tool, and you break it, and you've involuntarily broken your car. In some way, because you just didn't know what you were doing. But there's also non-voluntary action where you don't really mind that much where something went wrong.、Um, so you didn't do it deliberately, but you know you you did it. You didn't really know what you were doing, and okay, it's it's non-voluntary in that sense. It doesn't go against what you would try and do deliberately, but it's not it's not achieving what you're trying to do in a way in which you're aware of what you're what you're doing. So when we when we make a choice. We think about what to do. We know what we're doing. We make that choice according to what we think we can do, and then we act on it. And where we've got a good idea as to what what the situation is, then that counts as a voluntary action.、Um, where we aren't in control of our actions because of force, or we don't really know what we're doing in various sorts of ways because of ignorance, then that counts as as not voluntary. So then he says, okay. So back to praise and blame for a moment. So if we say that. People, as we said earlier, people who do bad things sometimes do them because they just have the wrong idea. Okay, they don't know what would make them really happy. So you know, think about a small child that's pursuing some kind of course of action, and it does something naughty because it doesn't know any better.、Um, we might say, "Oh, you know, the child just wants to be happy. It wants pleasure from sweets, or it wants to feel better, so it lashes out." But that doesn't actually make it feel better. It didn't know. Meaning that you know can't really blame them too much for that, but we do. We in, you know we do blame children in a not in a fully moral way as the law shows, but we kind of practice that with them. So what about adults who don't know any better? So it seems, are they really blameworthy if somebody's acting from ignorance? And Aristotle goes, no, that doesn't quite. You can, that doesn't wash. Um, when it comes to, to to morality, they know what. When I'm talking about ignorance, I'm talking about understanding what is going on. They they are old enough now to have a reasonable sense as to what the consequences are of what they're doing and so on. So people do do bad actions voluntarily. They choose what's going on. They may have made mistakes. It's true about the final kind of overall idea as to how their lives will be happy if they do this. They may have made a mistake at that level. But they they do understand what they're doing when they do it enough. He wants to say for、um, for 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 blame to apply. So people are morally responsible for the actions which they do, whether they're good or bad. Once they're old enough to understand sufficiently about the consequences of those actions, and even if those actions are in some kind of ignorance about what the true good of life is. They've be they're kind of culpable for that ignorance anyway. So you know they should by now have learned <laughs> that that's 
a thing which if you do that is going to have these sorts of consequences. So we can blame people and praise people for the choices which they make, which are voluntary, um, which are choices which are from a good degree of knowledge and under their control, not out of force or ignorance. That's great. Thanks, Michael. Really helpful. And just an extra note from me. Uh, so if you come and study uh, virtue ethics or action theory at a university, then you'll do think through a lot more of these thoughts. Uh, and in particular, that, that word Michael mentioned as he was explaining things, the idea of regret. So regretting something as a, as a signal that you've done something bad, even though you're ignorant at the time. There's lots of really interesting debates that go on about um, agents acting and whether they should or shouldn't regret and then what that what that signals but perhaps we'll leave we'll leave that thought uh, there we mentioned um in the last segment the idea of practical wisdom and working out what to do and that uh, brings us to the idea of phrenesis um so dan do you want to just explain that for us and that will help us get to some of the objections to aristotle's virtue ethics yeah, happily. And I think it links to the objections because whenever I speak to students about virtue ethics, phrenesis is a thing uh, that they struggle with understanding entirely. And I always say that they don't understand, they don't misunderstand what it means. They just probably understand it and disagree with it. But we need to know what it means to say that. So it's this idea of practical wisdom. And it comes back to this thing we've been saying all along, that this is a theory that's about doing and living a life and learning how to live a good life not just following a set of rules or acting in accordance with a set of principles. It's you can know it intellectually and you are not a virtuous person. You know, you need to actually know what it is like to do these, to live a life of these virtues in every situation and to be able to identify the correct virtue to use at the correct time in the correct way out of many, many virtues at different times, and, and you'll get it wrong. And I think linking to what Michael's just been saying about blameworthiness and praise, it's one of the reasons that Aristotle allows um, for that, even though you may not have achieved eudaimonia, you may not be a fully virtuous person, but part of the learning experience is learning one of the virtues would be things like, you know, to, to feel regret about something is a virtuous act, because some people who do bad things without feeling regret that would be out of moral character. So it's part of the development of those values to say that when something goes wrong and you had an opportunity to to do something different, uh, even if you didn't do it because you haven't quite got there in your development yet, you know, you need to get there in your development and you can be held responsible in an, as a learning sort of experience almost. So you need to learn how to, to live a life. You need to learn how to be virtuous. You can't just sort of identify virtues and figure it out. So the idea of learning practical wisdom is recognizing that through this practice, through development, you eventually will come to a point where you can not just identify what the virtuous thing to do would be, but identify the right extent of the virtue in the right situation to a point of mastery of the virtues where you are in command of having all these virtues that you've been developing over your life and are consistently and over a period of time in a sort of stable way doing this the right thing at the right time consistently so the analogy i sometimes use with students is about the difference between learning a subject and knowing how to do an exam in the subject because exams as we all know are not necessarily actually evidence of knowledge they are a way of sort of 
taking a snapshot of some sort of recall in some sort of situation. And so they need to kind of know not just what is the knowledge of the thing that we're trying to take the snapshot of, but what's the method of snapshot that we're doing. And for different types of question in the exam, what, what is the exam board or the examiner looking for? So it may be a question about Aristotle, but the difference of if it's a three mark or a 12 mark or a 25 mark question will be a big difference. The difference of using Aristotle in an extended essay at IB is, is different than answering a five mark question in the AQAA level. So you can learn that, that content and know it well. But if you get asked a three mark question to define something in Aristotle and write an extended essay or for a 25 mark evaluative essay, you you outline a theory very briefly. You haven't got that practical wisdom of knowing how to use your Aristotle information in the right way at the right time. And that's quite an important aspect because just having all the information in your head isn't going to help. And as we're talking about ethics and how to live a life, the same is true of the virtues. You can go through life, you know, looking in your community, identifying what's virtuous and oh, people like the witty person and the courageous person. I know that. But then someone comes with a gun to try and attack your, your, your community and you freeze and don't know, is it courageous to stop them? Should I run away? Is that the right level of courage I should be showing now? Because actually I can't defeat the person with the gun. Like, you know, if you don't know how to use it, you actually aren't a virtuous person, even if you're the world's biggest expert on the virtues. So you need that practical wisdom. And it seems quite obvious from what I've said, practical wisdom is having the wisdom to practically use things in the right way. So why are students confused by it? Well, I think they're confused by it because there is no clear definition of what that is. You can't tick a box and go, if you you know commit seven virtuous acts per day, you are showing signs of having phrenesis it, every situation will be different and you you may be developing it for most of your lifetime and still fall short and have these moments of needing to be blame blameworthy for acts because you you didn't show it there uh, it's a developing skill just like the other virtues but the idea is once you have it that sort of answers most questions for aristotle and this is where it comes into some of the objections because i think we're going to find most of the time when there's an objection an Aristotelian approach would be, well, if you truly had the practical wisdom of phrenesis, you would know what to do in that situation. It would guide you perfectly. And if you don't know what the correct answer is, that, that may be because you don't have that yet and you need to go back and, and work on it a bit. And that's a bit problematic because if we use ethical theories to kind of guide us how to live a good life, and this is all about living a good life, but there's this sort of small print that says, as long as you understand exactly what the right amount of virtue is to use at the right time, which is a lifelong practice that you'll never quite develop. And we don't know for sure when you have, because there's no clear end goal that we've defined as that's it, you've done it. That Then maybe you go, well, hang on, am I just a lifelong of learning and practicing? Am I just always practicing and I never get there? And how do I know if I'm there? So it, it is. it seems like a really simple theory, but it's actually full of complex nuance, which again can be a strength because it's flexible and it allows us to adapt to societies and to cultures and times and even uh, as best as early definitions of what the person is and you know what, what flourishing is but it's also very troubling because it's so fluid maybe it's ends up being nothing and whatever you do is the right thing and i could say we disagreed on what we did in that situation but i just have phrenesis i know what i did was right you obviously don't have it yet and think what you did was right but you're wrong and you could say to me Actually, I have phrenesis. What I did was right. What you did was wrong. When you learn, uh, when you fully develop phrenesis, you will you will know that what I did was better than what you did. So it, it, it's brilliant and it's very flawed at the same time. It's a classic bit of philosophy. 
Okay, thanks, uh, Dan. That's very helpful. So within that, we've already got some of the seeds for some of the main problems for Aristotelian virtue ethics. So perhaps I'll just, looking at the spec in front of me, um, just read out them and then uh, we can go through them uh, issue by issue. So some of the problems and the issues include whether Aristotelian virtue ethics can give sufficiently clear guidance about how to act, clashing, competing virtues, the possibility of circularity involved in defining virtuous acts and virtuous persons in terms of each other, whether a trait must contribute to eudaimonia in order to be a virtue, the relationship between the good for the individual and the moral good. So, Beth, do you want to um, carry the story on then and we can think about these objections specifically? Sure. So building on what Dan said is that the pupils or the students don't really they find this all um, quite problematic because the guidance or the framework isn't perhaps as neat, but that could be a good thing, but it's not as neat for the virtue ethicist in the sense that there's this criticism that it doesn't provide helpful guidance. And it certainly doesn't provide guidance in the way, say, the utilitarian prism offers. So we don't have the algorithm, if you like, we don't have the hedonic calculus, we don't have primary and secondary sorry, higher and lower pleasures. So we don't have that. And then we, we, we don't have the categorical imperative, but we've got other things. But the, the criticism put at virtue ethics is that we don't have clear guidance. And then some philosophers have wanted to say that, well, but why can't the golden um, mean or the, um, the middle way, uh, this sort of golden mean or the doctrine of the mean work, but that was not what Aristotle intended it to be used for at all in terms of a formula to work out what to do. Obviously, that approach has faced criticisms itself for being, as Dan suggested earlier, this having this sort of um, mediocre middle ground approach. But um, great uh, Aristotelian philosophers like J.O. Urmson have, have challenged that really well. But we've still got this problem of whether there's really useful guidance or practical guidance to, to offer so will it will it help us know what to do? So even if we did use the doctrine of the mean, as we've seen through this whole podcast, there's far more to it than working out the middle. It's about the right time and the right person and the right place. Um, so sort of right right context, right motive, right way. And so things are far more um, far more complicated than that. And then as we've said, it, Aristotle did not intend for the doctrine of the mean to be used in that way, um, we have to have practical wisdom. And then we have this issue of, well, okay, some people have practical wisdom and some people don't have practical wisdom. So I guess for us to discuss is this first criticism of whether Aristotle's theory of practical wisdom does provide guidance on, on how to act. I think the theory personally right. provides heaps of guidance and it's just the sort of guidance you need in certain uh, ethical dilemmas and I'm happy to talk about that but um, it might be nice to see what everyone thinks. Yeah let's see what uh, Dan, I mean I've got some views as well let's see what Dan and Michael think and then we'll come back to you Beth. Well I do I do agree that I mean I, I weirdly virtue ethics for me was always the one that I didn't really think about a lot because when I was learning ethics at A level for the first time it was sort of very quickly dealt with as like, and there's this other theory that, that exists. And then I got, as I sort of did university stuff, I got very into sort of constructivist Kantian ethics and things that were, were very interesting. Um, but what I started slowly realizing was that my own ethical views were looking for something that wasn't in this 
Kantian stuff that I was looking at. And it's only later that I sort of started to realize that it was the virtue was what I was looking at because I was essentially trying to find something that was flexible enough to, to, to deal with the, the flexibility of ethical life, you know, that there isn't a one size fits all solution. And what I sort of, um, in my own sort of thinking came up with was, was some idea that there are some sort of things that if you look at people, they clearly need and want it, et cetera. And it's good to think about that. And, and it's not a clear answer of like, and that therefore means in every situation you should act A, B, C, and D. And so that flexibility that virtue gives, I went back and sort of started reading it. And I realized that virtue has this, this sweet spot of fluidity that is missing from the more sort of dogmatic theories. And in um, anarchist political philosophy, which I'm most interested in, discovering also that there's a thread of virtue um, ethics in anarchist ethics for the very reason that it allows for this sort of non-hierarchical, multiple teleologies, different teleloses in different people, different groups, different goals at different time, that all come under the idea of this idea of flourishing. And your human flourishing, like we said at the start, may be very individualistic or in an anarchist idea, it's very communal. But it does seem that virtue um, ethics allows for guidance on what to do by saying in every situation, there might be different things you, you ought to do. But there are these set of things where you think, what, what are we trying to achieve? What are the people involved trying to achieve? What, what would be good for them and what's good for me and what's good for us? And it's extending the me to the us, which is really important. And if you think about those things, it sort of shows you how to um, how to act. And importantly, shows you how to act before you know how to act. And that's a really important part of the anarchist idea because they sort of say, well, we don't live in anarchy. How do we live like an anarchist? Well, you, you prefigure it. You, you, you sort of live as if you are until you are which is exactly what virtue ethics says. I might not be honourable or courageous or witty yet, but I keep trying, knowing that's the thing I'm aiming at, and I practice those those sort of skills and, and learn as I go along. And it, it's a theory that allows for failing as well. Um, we talked a lot about you know the sort of demands of the other ethical theories. And one of the lovely things I think about virtue ethics in terms of guidance is it gives you a general guidance, you figure it out, you might get it right or wrong, um, and you'll learn from it. And, and you'll, you'll, you'll possibly go, I got that one wrong, but I've learned for next time I have to act courageously or wittily or modestly or whatever, I will do things differently next time. So there's this development side to virtue ethics that I really like. So I think it's lack of guidance. And I do accept it is a lack of guidance, but I think it's a lack of guidance that is actually what we need in ethics to guide us, that allows us to experiment, allows us to learn from each other and allows us to pursue those ends that we're trying to to pursue and also shape those ends and agree to certain ends and, and change them if we, if we decide we want to aim for something different. But it's a conversational uh, and developmental ethics as opposed to a to sort of dogmatic, these are the rules and you should live like this because it is correct. So I, I think it guides you uh, far more than it maybe seems to because it gives you the space to to, to, to experiment with things. This This might be a point. Um, to connect to something we said right back at the beginning about, um, Dan brought it up about Kant and Bentham came after Aristotle. So what was wrong um, and what happened? And this, this idea that we need rules to live, algorithmic rules, the categorical imperative or the hedonic calculus, I think is, is in part a reflection of the time at which Bentham and 
Kant were writing. And Mill's version is much more, I think, influenced by, by Aristotle. He tries to bring Bentham and Aristotle together in certain ways. But if you look at those, those two theories then, both Bentham and Kant believe that human beings are simply pleasure seekers. But Kant adds, and also have reason. Okay, but it, th- those are your two options in Kant. That's, that's kind of your lot. And in Bentham, it's just, it's just pleasure-seeking. And they're, ba- they're both real individualists of a kind. This was a time, 1780s, where you know, there's the real rise of the Industrial Age in Europe, and people are being removed from their social fabric. There's a huge amount of uh, cultural change with the Enlightenment and so on. So the focus here has become on the, the individual, separated from, isolated from their past, the tradition, the, the, the rules they've been brought up with, if you like, or the practices they've been brought up with. And Aristotle has, you know, either puts us back in or it was always so, because the majority of European ethics has been virtue ethics and Christian ethics, for example, which dominated for so long as a virtu- primarily a virtue ethical system with lots of deontology from Jewish law in there. But Essentially, it's, it's, it's focusing on virtue. So Beth's point about the, the social here is important in terms of the guidance as much as it is in terms of understanding what's going on. And as Dan says, you're brought up to be virtuous, to have some kind of set of character traits, which hopefully at least your parents thought would help you lead a, lead a good life. And it's only once you've already got those inculcated that you even start to think self-consciously, well, how should I live and how can I develop that? And so it's, it's sort of built into you that guidance is, is structural and, you know, go and ask a virtuous person could be a, a kind of an answer if you know any difficultness, perhaps to, to recognize them depending on your upbringing. But there is this, there is a kind of social distribution of this wisdom as well for people who don't have it individually. You can, you can consult and you can learn from other people who, who have it. Whereas for, for Bentham and Kant, it's hugely important to both of them that you make up your own mind on your own terms about what is right or wrong. Indeed, Kant thought that as the defining feature of the moral agent, entirely autonomous, entirely self-sufficient in the process by which they have applied these rules to their lives. Great. Just a thought for me, and then I'm going to come back to Beth and here. Her thoughts. I mean, one thing I don't think we've, we've mentioned yet, but I think is probably uh, important and, and a good time to mention it is um, it's not as if Aristotle published a book called the Nicomachean Ethics with some book publisher, right? So, um, I mean, there's all sorts of discussions about how it came about, but to cut a long story short, it's probably a series of lectures that were transcribed by people almost almost certainly some of his students are then passed down and i think what the best way of reading the nicomachean ethics is something that's aimed at people who are themselves developing and have a certain sort of moral sensibility in a way a bit like kant's groundwork which is aimed at people who are already moral so i mean kant and indeed aristotle they're not trying to convince you to be moral from first principles they're addressing people who they assume are already moral in a way at that point then you can read what aristotle says as ideas specific as they need to be that remind us about what sort of people we should be how actions work such as and how our reactive attitudes such as praise and blame work in relation to those actions as as michael was indicating at the start of this segment and so on and so forth so, in fact, you, once you've got all of those reminders, as you can think of them, then you've actually got 
quite a lot of guidance going on there, but it's of a certain sort. It's reminding you what we kind of already know about being moral rather than, as as I think both of you have mentioned, uh, kind of this algorithmic rule that if you see a situation with a feature X, you must do Y to, to get the right outcome, right? Aristotle's not going to be doing that, partly because there'll be some situations that have feature X and you really shouldn't do Y because that will be a very bad outcome. Beth, why don't we bring you back in? Because you said you had some thoughts about this as, as yeah, well. It, it's just that I it's drawing on what Dan said. They they find it difficult potentially, or if you're listening, you might you might find it difficult and then you can probably see that there's a sort of shift you might like to think about in that yes, it's it's not neat, but life's not neat and ethical life's not neat and it's messy and it's complicated. And so whilst virtue ethics might not give you neat guidance or give you a sort of guidance that said, right, this action or this is right or wrong. Um, It's going to give you lots of relevant guidance because I think it gets who we are as rational, social, interdependent animals. And so I think there is a whole heap of guidance that actually we've hinted at throughout the whole, not hinted at, we've talked about throughout the whole podcast. There's a lot there in the Nicomachean Ethics about what you might want to do, what might not be right. Um, And I think it would be really nice to bring in Rosalind Hursthouse here to say that if you think about a particular dilemma and one that's very sort of forefront of our minds at the moment, something like abortion, you know, Rosalind Hursthouse reminds us that there are lots of relevant factors to consider when needing to know what to do and when to be guided and how sorry how to be guided like how to get this right how to get to to truth and so her her sort of um aristotelian virtue ethics approach says but you know let's think about something that values our biological status which is what virtue ethics does so that we are human beings we we have a body we need to think about reproduction. We need to think about pregnancy. We need to think about our emotions. We need to think about sexual behaviors. We need to think about parenting. We need to think about context, culture. And all those things can have relevance in the guidance. And I think a lot of students, when you say it like that, say, yeah, well, those things are really, really important. They would, I'd want those things to be really important to the ethical dilemmas I might face myself. And then you have to say, gosh, that's an incredibly important set of relevant factors that come into the guidance that without them you've got uh, you've got an ethical landscape which people like McIntyre and Hursthouse and Midgley talked about as being barren and impoverished without that and so I think there's kind of a heap of relevant guidance that that could be drawn in here that we should yeah that that, that might um, help students I think. That's great thanks Beth and thanks all Three of you. Should we should we move on then and just think about the other objections? And in fact, I think we can tie them all to well, all the things we've been thinking about. The first. So um, then, quickly then, uh, what about clashing or competing virtues? How are we going to sort sort those out? And what and what do they look like on an Aristotelian picture? I think picking that one up, there's an optimism in Aristotle that there's a way in which you can deal with the competing demands of life, which always solves the problem. That if you like the you know the morally good life has got to be a perfect uh, has got to be a, a possible life, and that means there can't be any clashing between virtues which is not resolvable. So I think this is where what Dan mentioned earlier, you know, the Aristotelian would say, well, yes, but if you really have practical wisdom, you'd know that they weren't clashing. And of course, there's there's some that's not 
some justification to that because of the idea that when two things seem to be in a clash, there can be, if we're creative in the ways in which we handle a situation, there can be a resolution. So people say, I don't know, suppose you've made somebody a promise and you're on your way to fulfill that promise. And if you miss, you know, if you don't get there in time, then you won't be able to do what it was that you said, but you pass somebody on the street who clearly needs help. Okay, so on the one hand, you've got the loyalty to a friend and keeping your word, which is important as a virtue, but you've also got, you know, compassion or some form of need to help somebody care for, for a stranger. What do you do? Well, I mean, you kind of th think about the guidance here. What, what do you think the right thing to do is? And most people would say, well, help the person on the street, phone your friend as soon as you can and say, I'm really sorry, how can I make it up to you? So was that really such a hard clash to resolve? It didn't seem so. So you can kind of, other situations might be more challenging than that, or, you know, justice and mercy, for example, in sentencing somebody or in how you respond to someone who has offended you in a really bad way. You know, how much pound of flesh do you demand? But, you know, again, I think these are, you might say, well, these are compromises. You could call them solutions. But there are ways in which there could be a, a completely satisfactory resolution. I think that does happen sometimes. But Aristotle's kind of commitment to the idea that it must happen all the time for the perfectly virtuous person strikes me as optimistic. As Beth was saying, life is messy. In my experience, life is so messy that there, there are simply clashes where you will feel pulled both ways. And maybe, you know, no abstract solution of this kind between this clash, between this virtue and this virtue. One thing that you do will feel like it's the right thing to do from a particular perspective. Now, you could think of that as the perspective, say, of justice or of friendship or of loyalty in terms of a virtue. And from another perspective, somebody could, it seems, justly or justifiably criticize what it is that you do. And that could be from some other perspective. They could appeal to some other value to do that. So I think in this one, there isn't an obvious way in which you resolve things, but I think that's partly because we were saying eudaimonia contains these many different goals and aims. And the idea that you could have a single currency like utilitarianism, well, if you just quantify the total amount of pleasure that each option would give you, then you lose everything which is you know rich and appealing about the theory. So I think it was just Aristotle's hope, perhaps it was his experience, that life could go so smoothly or so simply that there could be a resolution to every conflict of virtue. But I think that's a, that is a problem. But if you think, well, that's a problem for the theory in the sense that, oh, you know, now that means we have to reject it. That's a misunderstanding of its commitments here. I mean, Aristotle would hold, want to hold on to that perfectly coherent view. But see, with, with Kant, it's a little bit trickier if you have a a conflict of duties, and he says, but you absolutely have to do your duty, there's a bit more of a problem um, because the conflict can't say, well, I could compromise. I could not do this one. Well, if they're absolute and they're categorical, you don't get to skip out on things which are categorical in the same way. You go, well, what I'm doing is perfectly justifiable from a perfectly justifiable point of view, but I can see there are other perspectives, and I really feel I haven't managed to achieve everything good. For instance, Minimally, you owe your friend an apology, right? That's how you continue to show friendship in this situation where you break a promise to a friend because of some situation. You still have to do something else. There was something which was missing.
But I do think we are in, in, in situations in life where there is no right answer. We do the best we can, and then we try and make up for the things that we weren't able to do as a result of that. And that's what conflicts of virtue really amount to. Is there a theoretical conflict of virtue that, you know, two virtues could necessarily lead to something which could never be made up in that way? I don't know. I don't know if we can push it that, that hard. Yeah. I think that um, this taking phrenesis seriously, it, it doesn't mean that there needs to be a perfect solution because the thing that the, the practical wisdom would tell us is sometimes there are these clashes and there is a, a right way, but the right way is the virtuous way, which isn't satisfying everything. And it, like you say, but I think there are, this is a problem that's come up with utilitarianism and Kantianism about partiality, which I think that the clashing of virtues deals with spectacularly because it explains exactly why I would save my wife from the building and not the random strangers from the building, because it would be part of that virtue of, of, of what it means to have a relationship with someone that involves partiality. Partiality might be part of the virtue. You know, it is a virtue of having a good relationship with someone in some cases, and it would explain the action in a way that is, I think, more morally satisfying than the one that says, well, what you did was completely wrong, even if we understand it, because according to the categorical imperative or utilitarian hedonic calculus, you made the wrong decision. Whereas I think the virtue, back to the idea of practice, your practical reason, and sort of developing the virtues, if in the moment I save the person I love and know over the stranger, even if you might make a case that says, oh, there was a clash there and you should have saved those, those strangers in some way, you understand morally why I did what I did. And it's part of the theory because it's practicing partiality as part of a relationship. It's also the very fact that I regret it back to that blameworthy thing and, and involuntary wrongdoing and stuff. I, I regret it when I think, oh, I let three people die because I just saved the person I care about. And if I think about that and I'm worried about that morally, that worry is actually part of the theory as opposed to it being a problem with the theory or a potential showing that there's a crack in the theory. It's the very process of, of feeling maybe some regret or feeling no regret and going, I made the absolute right decision. That's built into the theory. So I think when there is a clash, it's just a test of your phrenesis and the, the, the way you think and the way we react to the chosen practical action at the end of it is part of our collective development of, of where we think the mean should have been at that particular time and what the virtues are. And so I think within Aristotle's theory, we don't have to say there was a right answer because the muddiness is sort of built in as part of the development of the virtues. Great. Thanks, both of you. Let's move on then to another problem, or perhaps it isn't a problem. It certainly appears to be a problem. Uh, and that's the problem of the circularity of defining virtuous acts in terms of virtuous persons and virtuous persons in terms of virtuous acts. So so philosophers often think about these sort of interdefinings or mutual understandings and perhaps kind of appropriate or ironic when thinking about Aristotle, sometimes they th think of things being virtuously circular or viciously circular. So so what's going on here and and do we think this is a this is a problem for Aristotle? Anyone have a go quick go at explaining it? I mean, I, I, I've never thought it was a problem other than you can describe it in a problematic way. 
and it becomes a problem, or you can not describe it in a problematic way. So the the sort of circular description is, you know, a virtuous person acts virtuously. Well, what is acting virtuously? Well, it's doing what a virtuous person would do. And that's a sort of intentionally circular way of making it seem ridiculous. But when you say what we've been saying throughout this whole podcast, that actually there's we're starting in a situation where we know we act morally or, or unmorally in the world and there are some things that maybe seem like the better option or the worse option and deficiencies and excess and what's the right mean to, to get and what would be the right thing to do and we we figure it out and I think you can say circular or you could say reflective equilibrium where you say well actually there's this and it doesn't quite work so we look at it again and we we, we judge it differently next time and we we learn and we develop and a virtuous act is what a virtuous person does because precisely we don't know what a virtuous act is until we become a virtuous person but that's not incoherent you you have to start somewhere with what do we you know what's sort of rough draft of what virtue is we think it's this does that work let's let's practice it until it becomes the thing oh it turns out i thought a virtuous person would do that but the real virtuous person who's practiced it did something different and we agree with that that makes sense that that was that was more virtuous than what we thought originally and we've learned a bit about what the virtuous person would do so i i think it's it's a sort of unfair caricature of it that doesn't understand what it's trying to do which is not come up with a you know logically independent list or something that reason demands or look at one particular goal that we've got in terms of happiness and, and base everything around that in which case you could say there's maybe something circular but it's very intentionally saying we're not trying to do that. We're trying to say things are messy. We're already in a state of trying to figure out what the right thing is. And we're all a bit confused about that. But we all seem to want to get there. That's the goal we're trying to achieve. So once we sort of unmess it up and unmuddy it, what what is it we're trying to achieve? Slowly, it will come into vision. And the more virtuous you are, we would recognise as the sort of person that does the sort of things that more of us, or at least ourselves are recognizing as virtuous and if we disagree with that we might have a conversation about it which is part of the continuing process of developing what it means to be virtuous because as we keep repeating in this uh, section life is messy and, and ethics is messy and that that just might be the case but i wouldn't call it circular in a sort of logically problematic way i think it is something that inherently has to be done in this reflective way based on what aristotle is trying to do yeah, we totally agree that it's just so much richer and more. So yeah, it's just so much richer and more layered than that. And like I said earlier, if they, if your students had time to go and listen to like as a bit of flip learning, Professor Gendler, where she goes through bits of the Nicomachean ethics and goes into the many kind of aspects of what it is. You know, it, it's so much more than just someone doing virtuous acts. And I think um, that's a really nice opportunity for students to go into that bit more depth in, and get into the Nicomachean ethics and to listen to someone else talking about those kind of that very rich and layered um, account of what he's offering there. It's, it's, I think it's a, personally an unfair criticism. Great. So let's just go to the last one then uh, briefly. So the relationship between the good for the individual and the moral good. So what's what's the criticism here? Anyone want to try and explain it and then we can we can comment on it can i i'll, I'll pick that one up because it 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 picks up on themes that we from from the very beginning so since i mentioned the function argument <laughs> this is partly a problem with that aristotle defines a moral virtue we said as or a virtue as contributing to our eudaimonia 
And that was our kind of initial definition from the function argument. And he understands our eudaimonia by giving us an analysis of human nature. But he seems to, at least in passages, um, he seems to focus then on virtues being contributions to my eudaimonia, which kind of is, is in tension with things that Beth has been saying throughout about the, the social aspect of it. But is that right? Is, is, is a virtue something which is good for me? Or is it something which is morally good, which is somehow different? And, and we're so used to drawing a contrast between self-interest and what's morally good, which we can often think of as, you know, the interest for others. And I think that's a, it's not only, but it's largely a Christian idea, the contrast between egoism and altruism. And it's not present in other traditions like Buddhism, for example, but also it's not present in Aristotelian virtue ethics, because Aristotle started this whole question, well, how do I live the good life? Not just me particularly, but and, and so that seems to be a question of self-interest, but we've taught that to be the defining question of ethics at the same time. So he's not drawing this contrast. But it does then lead to situations where it looks like an altruistic action or an altruistic lifestyle could actually be to the detriment of the person living it. The notion of self-sacrifice. And that's, that's assumed huge importance for us. You can see it certainly in utilitarian writings. You might see it in some aspects of Kant, but he you know, doesn't, doesn't emphasize it a great deal. But we might think about sacrificing your health for uh, a very worthwhile job or sacrificing your own kind of peace of mind for commitment to a, a cause. So an environmental campaigner or a medical worker or something along those lines. Christine Swanton gives these examples of criticisms of Aristotle's idea. So she's happy with so much around his notion of how virtue works psychologically and all of that. But does a virtue have to aim at the flourishing of the individual who has it? Or should we have a different goal? So this is about what is the final kind of goal here? And Aristotle didn't see a bigger goal for us as human beings than human well-being. Now, even if we extend it to human well-being than individual well-being, we can solve some of those problems. We can say, well, wouldn't it be good if, you know, as you could, you could be a health worker and you could really help other people's health, even if your own suffers, then a virtue could count as that. But is he more individualist in this when he says it contributes to eudaimonia? Does he, does he mean your, your own but we could criticize him for being insufficiently attentive to non-human flourishing. So, you know, is what's important about environmental degradation just that it's going to damage humans in the long run? I mean, a lot of people talk that way, but, you know, what about the earth itself and the ability to sustain life? Humans be damned. Um, Or animal well-being, we talk about um, eating meat or something along those lines. Should a virtuous person be sensitive to goals which go beyond human flourishing, such as beauty and life and so on. And, and this is kind of the perspective from that, is that if we got the right definition of virtue, is, is the relationship between my good as an individual and the moral good as defining what the end of all moral virtues is, is that really the same thing? That at least is, is the problem. So modern virtue ethicists have different goals or different definitions of virtue depending on the goals on which they they think um, human psychological traits should aim at. Um, and that could be a sensitivity to beauty. It could be a sensitivity to life as a whole. It could be concern for all sentient beings, as utilitarianism has it. And it could certainly involve 
choosing to do things which in some way seem to make your own life less flourishing, go less well, for instance, a higher probability of disease or burnout, in the pursuit of something which is a, 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 a gain for a wider group of people or beyond people as well. Mm. That's great. Really helpful, uh, Michael. Beth, Dan, have you got any brief thoughts on on this problem? Yeah, I mean, I have. And it sort of links to the other criticisms in that what you see is that the way the criticisms come forward, you can hopefully, if we sort of stress this really effectively, you can almost see how this theory is set up to respond in that it looks at these issues hard in the face and and it has a kind of uh, a means by which to respond, partly because it gets what it is to be a moral person in the moral life. And, and the, the people that have developed virtue ethics have done a great job with this particular criticism, I think. like People like Alistair McIntyre does a great job with, again, stressing the interdependence of who we are. We're not an individual agent abstracted from our moral life. We are an interdependent being. And I think, yeah, the developments in virtue ethics remind us that there is this connectivity in our relationships. And I've been thinking about that a lot through the podcast. This is a theory that takes those relationships seriously. And those relationships allow us to have that wholeness that is a, is a moral life. And, and again, a theory that's not sadly explored on, this, on the syllabus at AQA or IB, but a theory that was an offshoot of um, virtue ethics was care ethics. And those care ethicists understood that aspect of our interdependence and those relationships but also that sense of um uh, and then they acknowledge that the, the the path that virtue ethics took them on that there is a mature care you must have for yourself before you can care for others so if you're going to sort of have nurturing caring relationships you have to put yourself into that and and if you want this wholeness that I think Aristotle wants as well and the virtue ethicists want you you have to see that um that person that self as, a, as an interdependent being and I think that's where the other theories um, really fall sh- short in that they don't get who we are right and I don't think they get um, they don't take relationships seriously so I think if any theory could respond I think virtue ethics will go a long way and I think care ethics will do even better yeah I was uh, thinking similar thoughts as you were uh, um, as you've just said but I think the thing with this objection is it maybe points to some of the problems with, with Aristotle as a person in history because he might have spoken about the the eye in a sort of individual way because you know as i said earlier he he lived at a time where he was a a man who could do things in a society that was dependent on slaves and workers and women who did things so that men could do something different and consider themselves differently free and and have different you know democratic duties to do and stuff like that so he had a massive blind spot in, in what a person was and what what i was when he said i and often it was a blind spot that completely was specifically blind about his interdependency and how everything worked because he was reliant on all this stuff going on in the background that he was sort of ignoring and luckily because maybe it does its fragments and it's not a theory he's actually you know written down very explicitly it is something that we can now take and say yeah but if you follow it through and if you figure out what, what a, a real virtuous life is, it, it's not just this idea of the relationship between you know the individual good and the moral good. And it's do we agree on what the virtues are? But it's do we agree on what the individual is? And once you expand your definition of individual to this interconnected individual, the one that is embedded and, and definitely part of a community of, if not a whole, a whole world, but at least a local community of some sort, um, yeah you don't have a clash because there is no sort of cohesive or coherent idea of 
what is the right thing for me to do that doesn't involve all those interconnected other people that your decisions are are part of. So I think when people make this theory, it's sort of maybe reading the words and not the intent and maybe on a gut level exposing that Aristotle was himself maybe just thinking of a of an eye that was connected in some limited ways because his own society sort of compartmentalized different groups of people and what the connections were and hid away certain connections but the great thing is it's an idea that's robust enough that we're able to sort of modernize it and 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 see what it's trying to do and and this is the important thing not transform it from the original theory it's not like a sort of modern utilitarian or modern kantian idea that takes an idea and transforms it completely i think within the original virtue ethics idea all you're doing is cashing it out and going i think though it's got this reflective ability what's a virtue in this context well once you expand that idea of the eye that was in the original theory and you think about what the virtues mean that were in the original theory it works in this sort of new way um there's not just picking and choosing it's actually saying that that was there in the original theory even if aristotle maybe put it there uh, involuntarily. Great. Thanks, Dan. Um, and indeed, yeah, I mean, throughout this podcast, we've mentioned a few people like Julia Annas and Ros Hurstais, Christine Swanton, Alistair McIntyre. I mean, different in their different ways, but uh, virtue ethics has this uh, robustness and kind of vitality to it, to this present day. Um, listen, I think uh, we better leave it there. Um, thank you all of you for leading us through Aristotle's virtue ethics and all the various parts and how they link together and for giving us your reflections on them. But we've probably exhausted you, if, uh, if, if no one else. So, uh, Michael, thanks very much for coming on today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Great. Uh, and Dan, thanks to you. Thanks. Great chat with everyone. Really enjoyed it. And Beth, thanks very much for coming on. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm just going to say something to embarrass you. Obviously, a huge fan of all three of you guys' work. I think um, we should say that on the podcast. Michael does so much for all of us who teach AQA A-Level. We are just so lucky to have him and offer all he does. And then Simon, big fan of your work. And I've just got Dan's book and I've started it and it's amazing. And yeah, lovely to be with you all. You, you do great things. Uh, well, I, I'll definitely keep that in the edit. Yeah, uh, completely uh, do. You're all brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, listen, thanks very much for coming on and thanks to you for listening and all being well. Uh, you'll listen to some other episodes on Philosophy Gets Schooled.